Hello and welcome to National League Town. Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Heisen. Hey, Greg. Greetings from the upper echelons of the National League East, Jeff. I think we're safe in saying that. On today's show, we talk about superstitions and our pregame rituals. But first, we're recording this between games of the doubleheader on Wednesday. The Mets just broke that arduous, lengthy three-game winning streak. They saved the season, didn't they, Greg? It was three games, but really, it felt like three games. But they were three pretty awful games, I have to confess. A lot of Mets Twitter, Mets fandom looked upon this as... Well, the season's over, but looking at the big picture, this is still the same team that won all those games, still the same team that was and is on pace for the second best record in Mets history, still the same team that is 100%, according to Fangraphs, going to make the playoffs. Yet those three games seem to take on added importance after winning the Dodgers series and the high of beating the best team by record in baseball. Well, the little problem that the Mets faced in losing three games to two last place teams was that the team that they entered Wednesday sharing first place with refused to lose all week. And that is what has made what could have been a runaway season into a dogfight of a pennant race because the Atlanta Braves just don't lose least to the moment that we are talking uh, coming out of Tuesday night feet in Pittsburgh, the third consecutive dispiriting defeat, each of them by six runs again, each of them to last place teams. Our hope was in the hands of the Oakland A's, another last place team that we hoped could stand up and do what the Nationals and Pirates did, except not to us. And to the A's credit, they scored nine runs. Problem was they allowed 10 to the Braves. And that's what has made this season, as it has unfolded late, different from those other seasons with the records of 100 wins or thereabouts. The 1986 Mets ran away. The 1988 Mets were trailed closely but ran away by late August and into September. The 1969 Mets, for all the miracle qualities ascribed to them, ended up running away from the Cubs. At this point, the Mets have run away from nobody. At this point, the old, as we speak, they are exactly one half game ahead of the Braves. By the time you folks are listening to this, they could be anywhere from one and a half ahead to a half ahead to, God forbid, a half behind, but there's still most of a month to play, about four weeks. Two very good teams, like you said, Jeff. It's still the same team, just having one of those moments, having a bit of an offensive dry spell more days than not, which is troubling, but with a lot of wins, still a decent amount of pitching, give or take a future Hall of Famer for a couple of starts. But with all the pieces still in place and the same manager we've been going on about since April in a positive way. Yeah, when you lose 7-1, 7-1 and 8-2 to the Nationals, Nationals and Pirates respectively, and the Braves are just beating everybody, it ain't going to look good. But you show up with about four weeks to go and, you know, this is going to surprise you. I don't even need to see playoff probabilities. I just looked at the standings and saw that the Mets are in very, very good shape to make the playoffs. It would take about 10 2007s 
there. I used the 2007 word. It would take 10 2007s to not go to the playoffs. You don't want to be spiraling on your way there, but there's a long way to go, which can mean anything in September. And I could throw at you all kinds of examples of teams that looked horrible in September and did great things in October. You don't want to be horrible in September. You don't want to poke that bear. But for now, when I say now, again, between games of a day-night doubleheader, because they really had to turn people away in the afternoon portion in Pittsburgh to make room for all the people who were coming at night. But as we speak, in the middle of a doubleheader, a day-night doubleheader, the Mets are in first place. You told us, and boy, it's, it's always tough to to lean on that if you told us. But if you told us before the season started, you know what? You're going to be talking about a first-place Mets team. Um, as the second week of September dawns, we'd say, okay, tell us more. Going into Monday, only two teams have had more wins than the Mets over the past 30 days. It just so happens one of them is in the same division. The Mets' misfortune here is that they're in the same division as the Braves. The Astros don't have to deal with this. The Dodgers don't have to deal with this. If you look at those nonsensical power rankings, the Mets and the Braves are two of the top four teams. Again, the Dodgers and the Astros, the other two, haven't had to deal with this. We are going to have to talk to folks who make maps for putting us in the same longitude, I believe it is, uh, of the United States, uh, putting us into the east. From 1969 through 1993, Atlanta was cleverly settled in the Western division. And that was pretty helpful in some years. Uh, hey, listen, that's just the way it goes. Houston plays in a very not. OK, I was going to say a very good division. They play have a very good division rival in Seattle, but they've got a big lead. The Dodgers have a good division rival in San Diego, but they're a million miles ahead of them. This is just what has happened. Listen, the Braves have played great. We saw it in the series in Atlanta. I personally Wanted to believe that once we took four out of five at City Field from them in early August, that won't have to worry about them. Hey, uh, wishful thinking sometimes uh, does not make your wishes come true. So them's the breaks. The Braves are defending world champions. We play them three more times toward the end of the season. If we want to be concerned with anybody, be concerned with whoever's on the schedule, be concerned with the Mets. They have to find the aspects of their game that have gone missing. There were a couple of positive signs in that Wednesday afternoon opener in Pittsburgh, and let's hope they build on them. Baseball is a team game played by individuals. Going into Tuesday, since August 22nd, this is according to Mets Fix, the subscriber only a daily newsletter, which I recommend. The Mets three, four, five hitters, at least the three, four, five hitters as they were usually situated, had the worst OPS in baseball. Lindor's been slumping. Pete's been slumping. Vogelback Ruff, they haven't distinguished themselves other than Ruff's sat, big sack fly in the third game of the Dodgers series. McNeil is not hitting the way he was. Marte's been a human pincushion. And Nimmo has slowed down a bit. Not, not the only positive sign is that McCann's hit the ball hard a few times. So the team is certainly not hitting, and it's reflected in the game results. Yeah, well, team-wide slumps will do that. I don't know if hitting is contagious and then slumping is contagious. That always sounds like a reach when that's the analysis that gets out there. Pete has not been consistent for weeks. 
There's no denying that. Lindor, who was hit into some hard luck. Vogelback was dealing with the hamstring issue, quad, whatever it was. McNeil has hit the ball so well for so long, he was bound to cool off. Missing Marte for any period beyond a couple of days would worry me. One of the historical comparisons I enjoyed making earlier this season, Starling Marte 2022 equaled, more or less equaled, approximated, Rusty Staub 1972. And I said at the time, Rusty Staub was off to that great start until his hand was hit by a pitch and he ended up missing most of the season. Well, in Pittsburgh, Starling Marte's hand was hit by a pitch. He had to leave a game. He had to miss at least the first game. And I wouldn't be surprised the second game of the doubleheader. I hope they're not without him. I think he has possibly been the MVP on a day-to-day basis of this team. The good news is, yeah, there, there are little green shoots, I believe is the phrase they use in gardening. James McCann has not been a total black hole offensively. Tyler Naquin stepping in for Marte, hit a big home run in the Wednesday game, and has generally looked not bad for a little while here. Eduardo Escobar has become Eduardo Escobar again in the sense that, oh, this was the guy we signed. That's why they got him. So you're beginning to see some hints that players who have not been doing very much are going to be doing something. They can keep it up, and then the other guys come around, and you combine that with some dependable pitching. Uh, Listen, on a staff that has featured Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom, certainly, you know, when they're pitching, you're saying, oh, my God, how lucky can we be? Uh, I submit to you that Chris Bassett has been the stealth ace of this rotation. We saw it in Pittsburgh. We've seen it over and over again. He's a different kind of pitcher from those guys. He's, I would put it diplomatically, he can be very interesting to watch in the way he communicates with his catcher and the way he sort of deals with adversity. He gives you innings. He gets you out of jams. And, you know, in Pittsburgh, seven innings when they really needed seven innings after Taiwan Walker had blister problems and we're still waiting for Carrasco to round back into form and everybody else is either ramping up or you're figuring out what they're going to be doing. So, listen, you lose three in a row to bad teams. Everybody looks bad. But you're able to take a step back when you've won one of four, never mind all the other wins you've had in your life in 2022. And you say, you know what? Like you said at the top, still a good team. And I don't think they're disappearing. And one thing I want to talk about with you is Buck's use of the bullpen. It's obvious that Buck's playing the long game with the bullpen, keeping an eye on the playoffs and not showing day-to-day urgency. That's hurt the daily results. We saw that on Tuesday when he left Bryce Montes de Oca on the mound for a second inning. He didn't want to pitch Tommy Hunter. I'm not sure why, perhaps because of the Wednesday doubleheader. And he didn't have Joely Rodriguez, but he had Montes de Oca, who seems could be pretty good, out for too long. We saw that on Saturday when he left Adonis Medina on the mound in the ninth inning down two to one, and he gave up five runs and the game was lost. And we saw that the previous Tuesday when he left Joely Rodriguez in against the Dodgers for too long. My opinion is that Buck is using the bullpen gradually. It's hurting the daily results, but I think he's playing the long game. How do you feel about that? I think you should be able to depend on the pitchers you mentioned to get you a stray inning now and then. You know, some of these games have felt 
just hold them a little longer and maybe we can come back. And I think you should be able to depend on a Bryce Montesteoka to give you two innings. I know he's only in his second major league outing at that point. Same for the other relievers you mentioned. I have to believe that Buck and Jeremy Hefner and everybody else who monitors the pitching have a handle on what these guys, the guys who they're resting, that is, are capable of in terms of being pushed, when to push them, when to build them up. There's been nobody, for the most part, there's been nobody who I've seen him put out there where I've said, oh my God, I can't believe he's using this guy. For the most part, these are guys, if he has confidence in them, I've had confidence in them. And I think for most of these games, in the end, it hasn't really mattered because the Mets haven't hit, which gives him an out, I suppose. I would hope that by the time we get to October, that everybody who he's depending on, who we're depending on, is fresh or as fresh as you can be in October as a result of this nurturing of major, shall we say, relievers. In the short term, it hasn't looked great and it hasn't necessarily worked out. And it just is interesting. It's just different, really. Watching the way, A, this bullpen is handled by a manager who is really concerned about and he's used the phrase I had never heard the phrase until Mickey Calloway came along and it's kind of an unpleasant phrase. He's really concerned about the dry hump, getting these guys up and then not using them. And I think you run into that in these sort of could come back, maybe you're not going to come back games, and you don't want to be in a situation where you're throwing Edwin Diaz, getting him very much warmed up, only not to use him. And you could throw in a few other names there. I mean, there was. God, that 20-inning game in St. Louis years ago where I believe Francisco Rodriguez got up literally 10 innings in a row to close a game that was defying closing until the 19th, 20th inning. So I think that's something that managers have learned, and it's something Buck clearly ascribes to. That That, that is an all-purpose answer, I realize, but I think he— the long game, as you say, not only the 162 game season, but the games beyond that. We've seen a couple of times where he's brought Diaz and in the eighth, left him in for the ninth. We saw Seth Lugo pitch two innings, six out Seth, as I like to call him, to get to the save. Uh, it may not have been a save, but essentially it was a save of Chris Bassett's uh, win in Pittsburgh. So I, I think you're going to see a little more flexibility. I don't think that if the season is on the line, he is just going to go with the path of least resistance for the other team's lineup. So, yeah, if, if every game mattered like crazy, and maybe it does, depending on how you take the Mets-Braves race that has developed, maybe I look askance a little more. Right now, I'm, I'm willing to let it ride. Do you think that Buck and Jeremy and the front office are looking at each game with a little less urgency because of the playoff structure? Probably it's not life or death every day. We treat it like life or death because we're fans. But I think that they have sort of like when you see an NFL coach with the chart that says, here's the times where you go for two and here's the time where you just kick the extra point. I think they look at every game situation that way. Here is where we go to the bullpen for the higher leverage pitcher. Here is where we invest a little faith in the second tier and hope that we get one of our better outings. And I think, again, you get to September and these guys are in your bullpen, give or take a September call up. I think you have to have faith. I think Buck has to have faith in these guys. He can't 
just leave them to rot in the bullpen because sooner or later you're going to need somebody to come through when nobody else is available. There's always somebody who kind of gets left in the corner in the course of a week and suddenly, oh my God, he hasn't pitched in two weeks. We went through that with Trevor Williams, where Trevor Williams is, we need to keep this guy so we can break glass and take him out for the day that Carlos Carrasco comes back and can only give us two plus innings. But you'd like to see everybody get used. I, I think the the one thing that I'm still getting used to that is just not instinctively coming to me is the three batter rule. You're just so waiting for a pitcher who gives up two hits to be taken out. And you realize you can't be because they don't let you do that anymore. So that that I think is just one more difficulty or challenge or whatever you want to call it layered on top of all the other bullpen decisions. But I honestly believe this is something that will take care of itself as we get closer to the business end of October. And I think, you know, eventually maybe we'll just reach a point where if, if something doesn't work, it'll be because the pitcher, even the high leverage pitcher he depended on just didn't get the job done, wasn't good enough. Sooner or later, I think it goes beyond why did he make that call and all right, you there on the mound, get three outs. Sometimes they don't. Not every batter you're facing is Otani or Riley. Sometimes it's if you're a minor leaguer like Medina, you're facing a minor leaguer. Get the guy out. Tyler McGill's going to be here maybe as soon as this weekend, and he's going to take up some of those innings. One of the things I've enjoyed is Diaz in the eighth inning to get those guys and saying Adovino can do the ninth. Not that Adovino is a minor league call up. But yeah, you, ha- you have to have some confidence. You have to have some faith. These guys are not on the roster just to make sure it adds up to 28 in September. But I think matchups are pretty high on their radar, meaning the, the, the Mets decision makers. And again, you, sooner or later, the ball is in the hand of the pitcher and we can get on show Walter for saying, why didn't you use so-and-so? But once it's in the pitcher's hands, get an out, get three outs, and let us uh, sing your praises rather than wonder why you were in there. By the way, there was a phrase before that was a bad phrase. Was it dry hump or Mickey Calloway? They're both phrases I don't like to repeat in public. In fact, I, I had to explain what a dry hump was to my wife because I started to uh, give her a little soliloquy about bullpen usage uh, during a game, and I apologized in advance. I said, but this is the phrase, Mickey Calloway. <laughs> you said before about how the fans treat games as life and death, and maybe the front office doesn't. Let's talk about how we deal with the game situation. I know for me, there's a pregame where I'm starting to mentally get ready, and then the in-game and the post-game. Tell me about yours, your prep. If I could, I would achieve a state of zen 162 times a year and then multiply that by however many pitches are in a game and however many foul balls and however many batters stepping out of the plate. I really wish I could clear my mind of everything. Obviously, I can't. It is cluttered with now 54 seasons of Mets baseball. And I think the one thing I try to do in advance of a game is fight any instinct to say, all right, this is what's going to happen tonight. Because, and I don't have numbers on this, but I feel it to be true. It is truthiness incarnate to me, to use Stephen Colbert's word. I feel that when I begin to. If you want to say assume, fine, 
We know what what happens when you assume. Uh, anytime I try to make projections, predict predictions, try to decide what's going to happen, it blows up in the Mets' face because those are the predictions where I'm saying, well, they ought to take, you know, two out of three from the Nationals at least, probably sweep them. Max Scherzer should win his 200th game tonight, that sort of thing. I don't think I've been more confident going into a game than I was last Saturday that Max Scherzer was going to win number 200. Not only didn't he win number 200, not only didn't the Mets win, but he left the game and is now on the injured list, hopefully not for very long. And you could just say, well, that's a coincidence, Greg, you have nothing to do with that. And I know that logically, but I take a little bit of the blame because it is not something I do normally where I say, all right, this is going to work out exactly the way I want it to work out. I'm going to go back to 1980, as I often do. And I think Mets fans who were around then might know where this is going August of 1980, the Mets are hanging in there. Big surprise team in the National League East. They're probably not going to win the National League East, but you can dream, especially if you're 17 years old as I was that summer. The Phillies are coming in for a five-game series. At that moment, the Mets were 56 and 57. I sat down with the schedule. I mapped it all out. This is what they're going to do after they sweep the five-game series from the Phillies. They're going to do this to the Giants and this to the Dodgers and so on and so forth. Well, they got swept in five games by the Phillies. Every one of them was non-competitive. The, the, everything beautiful about that season, the Magic is Back summer, went directly down the drain. As far as I'm concerned, the organization was set back several years, and it was just back to misery. And ever since then, I have been very careful about deciding in advance what is going to happen. And sometimes people who listen to this show might notice that I sort of blanch when you begin to get into the mindset of, well, what's going to happen? And I'm just like, I don't want to know. I don't even want to speculate, because for years, now decades— I have felt that it is just, if you want to call it bad karma or just a lack of zen. I, I don't even know if I'm using that phrase correctly. I try to clear my mind. I just say, hey, game tonight. Let's hope for the best. Hey, look, there's strike one or ball one or the, the pitch has been turned into a hit or whatever. So if I could, I would just erase everything I know about the Mets. <laughs> during every Mets game, except that's impossible, and nor is that really desirable, because why would I be watching with any interest if I didn't come into this with all I have on my mind? But that's me. What about you? I know you haven't seen the show Severance on Apple TV. So when they go to work, they have a chip implant. And as employees, they are completely shut off from the outside world. They know nothing about their outside life. They don't know anything about what they are outside of the four walls of their office. This, again, is the show Severance, which is really good. So you like to be like that. You like to know everything about the Mets as, as your outie, your outer life. And then you take the elevator to work. And then for the game, just focus on the game with no other knowledge. That would be 
a impossible, I suppose, without except for the the several plugs you've given to Apple TV and their technology, <laughs> they could probably do this. Uh, I'm guessing. Listen, I watch other sporting events sometimes. I had the U.S. Open on on Labor Day because the Mets weren't playing, and I realized I don't know who any of these people are except from a, a vague, maybe heard of a few of them. So I'm only so interested in, it, even though it's world class tennis. They were showing the Orioles and Blue Jays. I know some of those players. Last week, I was watching the Phillies and Diamondbacks. I certainly know some of those players. But it's not the same because I come into a Mets game with this accumulated history with them. So it would be difficult for me to watch them. So if there was some way of compartmentalizing everything I know versus developing expectations, I suppose, might be the best way for me to proceed. But you can't help it because you're a fan and you have information even if you're not seeking it out. I just want to believe the Mets can win. I don't want to make any presumptions that the Mets will win. And I would certainly like to maintain my knowledge of the Mets, not only after the game, but also my tweets would be really boring if I knew nothing about who the Mets were or what they were doing. I think I would mostly be tweeting things like, say, have, have you seen that first baseman? He, he looks something like a polar bear, but I would have uh, nothing to go on there. Uh, just from a, you know, a result standpoint, no expectations. I It's impossible to not have expectations, but no expectations because my expectations, and, and I, I don't think having expectations in the other direction is helpful either. Like, oh my God, we're going to lose because that's just depressing. And I don't want to be that guy either. So some semblance of what you describe of the severance ethos, which just sounds delightful. I'd probably be better off just tucking a lot of this stuff away, getting it out later and saying, yes, this is like that game in 1978 or whatever. But definitely not in the, all right, here we go, five-run inning, we're going to win. That's not helpful to me. Yeah, I'm the opposite. Before every game, I start looking at the lineups, checking batter-pitcher matchups. I try to anticipate what I'm about to see, and it doesn't usually happen, but it just gets me in the mode for the game. I mean, I know who Pete's hit home runs off, and if he's slumping, it doesn't matter. He certainly had a great track record against Eric Fetty, and that didn't help Middle, and uh, Corbin as well. So that didn't matter. But I do like preparing and looking at the lineups and looking at the matchups. A little knowledge is a fun thing. It's nice to have familiarity with all the principles that are in front of you, whether you're at the game or watching it on TV. And the sense of knowing, hey, Pete had a home run off this guy that time or, wow, I actually noticed something about Mark Hanna's swing because I'm not the most observant person when it comes to physical treats and things like that. So I, I get a kick out of noticing things, but I don't believe they're actually going to lead to anything. You know, I look at the lineup as every fan does as soon as it's posted and I kind of look it over and I think to myself, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose if you had James McCann batting cleanup or something like that, it, that would be startling. But for something like that, I just say, OK, that's the lineup. And I suppose I could get either very encouraged or up in arms over why so-and-so is batting second instead of third. I just say, well, let's see what happens. Uh, I, I don't uh, begrudge anybody who, who wants to read into a game or read into the, you know, the data. 
what they read into it, I, I just find it doesn't really click my meter forward, if that's even a phrase. You know, you do spend as a fan, you know, if, if we're just talking about our fan selves and putting aside the fact that we have other things to do with our lives, which might, might seem surprising after listening to us. But, you know, you have that period of the day where I can't wait for the game and it could be an hour away, it could be eight hours away. And then you spend time dwelling on the game afterwards and then there's some sleep and some other stuff. I, I don't blame anybody for wanting to put their arms around all the data possible and get the most out of it. If that is the way you get the most out of it. I'm just saying that's not the way I do it. I think one thing I've noticed is that Pete's not taking a cleansing breath between at-bats. We talked about that early in the season. I said to you that I think he's doing a momentary meditation and he would take it, close his eyes, inhale and exhale, and then step in the box. And he hasn't been doing that lately. I'm sure he has his reasons, or maybe he doesn't even know he's not doing it. But it is one change between Pete from early in the year and Pete of late. And Gelb's even talked about that cleansing breath one night. You wonder with as much video as there is and as much coaching as there is, if something like that could possibly escape the notice of people who could do something about it. When I'm watching a game and Keith Hernandez says something about what Pete or Francisco or whoever is doing, my instinct is to say, don't tell us, tell them. There's probably awareness of something like that. And I, th I think that's a very savvy catch on your part. But maybe in the moment when your head is in a place where we can't even imagine because you're about to try to hit a pitch coming at you from what could be any given release point and, and take any kind of trajectory that we don't know how to hit at close to 100 miles an hour and whatever the situation is in terms of where the fielders are and who's on base, if anybody is on base. Maybe Pete's not even thinking about, did I remember to breathe? Did I remember to take that extra second? Maybe he just decided somewhere in the course of the season, oh, that, that extra breath just wasn't necessary. I'm more focused now than I was in May. It's just the results just aren't there. It is tough to watch the game and think you've got the answer and you want to mentally transmit it to the batter or the pitcher or say, why are you throwing to first? You've got to focus on the batter. And then the runner takes off from first and say, why didn't you throw to first one more time? I don't think either one of us suffers from a lack of being in the game as fans. It's not as tough as trying to play the game and win the game, but uh, it, it is. And then uh, now that I'm talking about it out loud, it's kind of amusing to think about, you know, you take us and you multiply us by many, because I don't think we're all that different from our fellow Mets fans trying to, if not control the action and certainly have some sort of positive effect on it from where we sit. And the best we can do is to be in the ballpark and yell encouraging things. And even then, who knows if we're heard, from wherever we're sitting and if these guys are just so professional that they block everything out. We'll keep doing what we're doing because we're fans and maybe we understand deep down that what we're doing is just watching a ball game, but we'll keep doing it anyway. On my part, it were between games of the doubleheader. I'm wearing a Mets t-shirt now and I'm not changing it. If the Mets had lost the first game, I would change the shirt. That's a good point. As a fan, 
who says things like that's a good point to crazy things like that because <laughs> I, I totally understand i have gone through days like that i've gone through night games leading into day games i wake up i haven't taken a shower well should i take a shower yeah but they won last night there's runs in this shirt <laughs> i don't mean not like runs runs in stockings or anything like that 1985 i think was the first time Beyond the sort of mental stuff I was talking about, where I hit a moment, seem to recall it was Roger McDowell pitching, having a good year, rookie year, and I'm watching in one part of the house, and he gives up a hit, and I said, well, I can't watch here anymore, <laughs> and I watched the rest of the game in another room, and that sort of cemented the way I go about things. And I remember there was a game September of 2018. So, you know, the season is, is pretty much over and they're not in contention. And I had to go do something late in the afternoon. They're playing a day game against the Marlins. And I'm like, I would like to stay to see this to conclusion. I think they were losing in the ninth inning. But you know what? I got to get going. Should I bring a radio with me for the walk to my car, basically? <laughs> like, no, don't be that way. Nothing good will come of it. And sure enough, I get in the car. The couple of minutes it took, two home runs had been hit back to back. I think it was Conforto and Frazier. And they won. And I'm sort of convinced that my lack of participation in that sequence of events is what led to the two home runs being hit. Because, all right, you had to turn your back on them for a couple of minutes for them to get it together. So the phrase superstition came up earlier in the show. That, I suppose, it's not like one of those things where I would say, okay, every ninth inning, I must turn off the TV, and then they'll score. Like, of course not. But sometimes you just get a feeling for these things. So whether it's a shirt, whether it's being out of pocket for three minutes, <laughs> whatever it takes to help your team along. And, yeah, I am not immune to those instincts. And if anything, as the season ends and the postseason that all these odds and probabilities say is going to happen happens, they will only be more intense. I, th I think in, in that mode, the most dramatic thing I ever did was game six, Atlanta, 1999. They're losing five nothing. Uh, Al Leiter had that terrible first inning and we are on the verge of elimination. I just suddenly decided I had to get Chinese food. I suddenly decided that I'm not going to take the car and put on the game on the radio. And I'm not going to bring my Walkman with me. And I just said, I am walking away from this game. NLCS, game six, the end of the most completely wild season I've ever lived through to this day. And I said, that's a playoff game. It's not like the Mets play those every day. I don't care. I, I cannot watch. And it wasn't, I can't watch it. I can't take it anymore. It wasn't that at all. It was like, I need to step away for everybody's good, for my good and for the Mets good. And so I'm gone like an inning or so. And we went from being five, nothing to five, three. <laughs> so I can't say that that was my doing the three runs, but it just changed the tenor of the evening and the game. And so in, smaller doses, I might do that once in a while. I don't like to miss any part of the game. I am prone to carry a radio or a device with me so I can listen if I'm missing a couple of innings. But sometimes you just get the sense that it's going to be all right, probably for the better, if you just check out, even if it's for a couple of batters. And it's which is different from saying, well, 
I, I've got other things to do. I guess I'm just going to miss some game because that that never happens. That's never like, oh, yeah, whatever, because when you're a fan like we are, it's never, oh, whatever. Everything plays into everything else. If that's superstition, then, well, there's a reason I like Stevie Wonder so much. Very superstitious is sometimes the way. Lucky Chinese food there. By the way, Greg, you mentioned the NFL. The NFL season starts this week. The NFL kickoffs happen this Sunday at 1 o'clock. What will you be doing? I'll probably be watching the Mets pregame show on SNY or Damn Channel right. 11, which, whichever day. You know, I, I am going to have such a vague awareness of the NFL season until certainly until the Mets season is over. And we're, we've already decided, speaking about projecting, we've already decided that's going into October, at least for a while. Then there'll still be baseball season, whether it includes the Mets or not. I imagine I will look in from time to time on how the Giants are doing and how the Jets are doing. I root for both of them. Uh, so folks know I'm more of a Giants fan, but I really do like the Jets, and I really hope one of these years Jets fans get to enjoy what they haven't enjoyed for a very long time. I actually had to look it up the other day. I, I don't read season previews in general for other sports, but I saw, hey, NFL predictions. I'm like, oh, I should find out if either the Jets or Giants is supposed to be any good this year. They're probably not, but I don't know. And no, according to the experts, which again, they may be wrong, but no, I don't get the whole national religion vis-a-vis -vis it's football Sunday. I mean, and listen, like I said, I like football. I like the local teams here. I've been fortunate enough to go to some games in my life in recent years uh, out in the Meadowlands. And I certainly have many fond memories of Super Bowls, both the ones that the Giants won and, and others. I mean, you, you catch me in December, in January. It's a great sport and it's a great diversion. And I'm an American like everybody else who puts a Sunday night football into the number one slot in the Nielsen's every week. But it's baseball season and the Mets are good. And even when the Mets aren't good, that whole weird knee-jerk reaction of people who've watched the Mets for five-plus months saying, well, thank God it's football season. Like, get lost there. I'm gonna, that, you, you want a base reaction, a, a sports talk reaction. Get lost. Listen, you can do whatever you want, obviously. But um, I'll tell you the truth. It was strange for me coming out of the NBA playoffs this year because I was really into the Nets. And it, there was actually a moment there where I'm like, oh, God, it's baseball season already, but I'm totally into the Nets. I, I don't even want to tell you the kind of deals I was making in my head if only the Nets could win this game in this series vis-a-vis, -vis, well, you know, then the Mets don't have to have such a great season. And, of course, I don't even remember saying that to myself. But, yeah, to your question, I'll be aware it's happening only because it comes up a lot, but I don't care. I mean... <laughs> It's baseball season. I don't sit around in World Series is over. It's November. Oh, my God, I miss baseball. December, I miss baseball. January, oh, thank God. February is spring training, pitchers and catch. All that stuff that we talk about. Finally, it's opening day or opening night. Finally, it's the home opener if they open on the road. All these things. And then just to get to September and say, well, I'm dropping this like a hot potato because football is here. So, yeah, one o'clock Sunday, maybe, maybe now that you plant it in my head. I'll turn on the Jets and Ravens because I don't really need to watch the, the pregame show uh, on SNY, which I don't know, maybe uh, because they, they do Jet stuff, they'll have shunted the, uh, the Mets pregame show to another studio, and I always find that a little insulting. Live, live and be well. I know Thursday night the, uh, the NFL season starts. 
I actually know who's playing in that game. It's the Rams and Bills, I believe, and the Mets aren't playing, so maybe I'll look in on it, but it's not of primary interest to me. Again, get me in December, January, especially if one of the local teams is doing well, which I now understand they won't be, probably. February, before spring training, before that whole uh, now it's officially baseball season, the second the Super Bowl is over, I love all that stuff. It's a great sport, as long as nobody gets hurt, which is a problem in football, but we're not here to talk about that. I will have it second screens. Okay, well, that's what second screens are for. I got to follow my fantasy team, but I'll have an NFL red zone on the second screen. But the Mets, number one from now through the end of the World Series. I thought you were going to say through the end of the world. That's how it felt the last three days. We're okay. Yes, but but then we ended our, our gruesome three-game losing streak. <laughs> That's right. Now, three things, folks. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can write to us, nationalleaguetown, one word, at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and, and the gram. You want to subscribe and put on notifications for your podcast subscription. Why do you want to do that? Because in October, our schedule might change. More on that as we get closer to October. I think you know what I'm alluding to here, but we won't be sticking to our regular schedule. And the third thing, we thank you for listening. And if you like what you're hearing, make sure to rate our show on Apple and Spotify. And Greg, how high should they rate our show? Well, certainly higher than the Mets lead in first place at the moment, which is one half of one game. You know, we're hoping that the Mets will win more than 100 games. Can you rate us with more than 100 stars? Have you tried? I guess that's the question. So I'm going to leave that to you good folks. Listen, if you like us, rate us, tell people about us, tell another Mets fan you're a Mets fan listening to a Mets podcast. You've gotten this far. You say, hey, you know what I do? I listen to a Mets podcast. It's called this. It's called National League Town. Uh, so word of mouth is appreciated as well as anything you're pressing, anything you're gramming. I just learned that Instagram is known as the gram. When Jeff said the gram, I just kind of assumed he meant 2003 reliever Graham Lloyd. But I don't <laughs> think they're spelled quite the same. So thank you for your support is what I'm saying. Thanks for telling other people about us if you feel compelled. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for being a Mets fan. Thanks for relating to what we're saying if, in fact, you related to it. If you said, what are these guys talking about? I just watch the game and then get on with my life. Well, friends, this might not be the podcast for you, but I have the feeling it is. Until next week, I'm Jeff Heisen. I'm Greg Prince. And as always, let's go Mets. Copyright 2022, music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Spotify. Get lost.